join me in prayer. Our Father, we are indeed debtors to grace. And God, we are glad to be. Glad that in you we have found one who is so gracious and who has supplied our every need. Father, left to ourselves, we are ruined, we are undone, and we are deserving of all of your wrath. But you have met the curse of the law in your Son, and you have paid the penalty that was due us in Him, and given us His righteousness for our own. You've brought us to yourself, and you've claimed us, and made us not just... uh, Citizens of a new kingdom, though that certainly, but also children of the heavenly king. And God, we do praise you. And yet, we remain debtors to grace, Father. Today, how will we give you the glory Do your name? Except you help us. Father, there's enough of the old man residing in us that we are, as we've sung, prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. We're grateful, Father, that you don't let us wander too far, that you call your children back. And God, we look to you this morning needy and expectant. Needy because that that is how we are. But God, expectant because you are so good and you have made such precious promises to us and we have seen how you have dealt with us thus far. And so we trust God based upon that that you will deal with us in grace moving forward. God, there's no better place to be than walking with you, joined to you through Christ Jesus, recipients of a grace that we certainly have not earned. God, we pray that we would be content there and that when we stray, uh, that you would call us back quickly, that we would uh, feel the discontentedness of being away from you and that that would be warning enough to run back. Oh God, we pray that you would make our hearts happy in you, that Seeing you, seeing what you have done for us, seeing your glory and that we can approach you now in Christ without fear. God, seeing all of this and how you work in us and in this world, God, seeing all of this, that our hearts would be led to rejoice in God, our Savior. God, we are grateful that this isn't just church talk. We're glad to come together as a body and praise you. But God, how grateful we are that these are living, weighty realities that affect how we go home and how we live tomorrow and how we face the week ahead. God, captivate us again with these truths and may the, the glory of what you've prepared outshine all of the, the, the vanity of this world. God, we ask you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment 
and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Well, the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Philippians chapter 1. It's been about a month since we've been here, so I want to back up a bit and give a little running introduction. Paul and Barnabas had concluded their first missionary journey. And after the council of Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas went separate ways. Paul took Silas and set out on his second missionary journey. Timothy joining them in Lystra. And Paul's plan was to visit the churches that had been established during his first missionary journey. As they attempted, though, to go to Ephesus, they were stopped by the Holy Spirit. They tried to go north to Bithynia, and again they were stopped. So they journeyed west to Troas. And there at Troas they were joined with Luke. And it was there that Paul had a vision of a man standing before him a man from Macedonia, which is in Europe, calling to him saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. The Bible says when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they head to Macedonia and enter the city of Philippi. And um, there they went out to the riverside where there were some people worshiping. There was a lady there named Lydia who was a God-fearer. And Paul preached to them. And Acts 16, 14 says that this woman Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And through this, a church was begun that met in the home of Lydia. Some years have passed now. Some little bit of time has passed now. And so as Paul writes now to the Philippians, the nature of this letter is different than the nature of many of the other letters that Paul writes. Many of the letters that he writes address specific problems in a church or address questions that the church has asked him. So for instance, in 1 Corinthians, there are questions that they ask. And he says, now concerning this. And he addresses the issues that they themselves have raised. And in other portions of 1 Corinthians, in other letters, he addresses problems that they're facing to the Galatians. Who has bewitched you to, to follow after another gospel? But to the church at Philippi, he doesn't address any problems that, that seem so stark as, as like at Galatians, Galatia or at Corinth. It's not that they're perfect. They're not. Um, there's some disunity that's beginning to develop, and he urges some of the people to to put aside their differences and to live in harmony in the Lord. But there's not the same kind of problems that there are in other places. And so Paul writes a letter to a group that is doing pretty well and with whom he enjoys an especially close bond. In verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1, as he begins to 
introduce his prayer and what we looked at last about a month ago. Um, he said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with you, pardon me, prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. The Philippians had not only become believers, but they have joined Paul in many of his endeavors, sending money to help him. In 2 Corinthians, where he is talking to the Corinthians about picking up this gift that they had promised, he talks about a church that has given out of their poverty and even begged him to participate. And one of the churches he's talking about is the, the Philippians. They have begged to participate from their poverty. He feels kind of ashamed to take the money from them. They're so impoverished. But they don't want to miss out on the blessing of helping him. And so here he talks about this partnership or this participation that he enjoys with them in the gospel. They have come alongside of him and they share a, a fellowship that is rooted in the gospel itself. Many people have noted that the theme of joy occurs often in this letter, and it does. But the joy that it speaks of is not a generic kind of joy. It is a specific kind of joy. It is a joy that Paul models. It is a joy that he knows while imprisoned by Rome, waiting for a verdict. And it's that kind of joy that he writes to these brothers and sisters I want you to rejoice. Well, again, we looked at the introduction to this prayer about a month ago, and I do call it an introduction because in verse 3 and 4, while he talks about praying as he remembers them, he doesn't actually get to his prayer until verse 9, and we haven't gotten that far yet. That's this morning. So verses 3 and 4, he tells them, I pray for you all the time. Every time I think of you, I pray for you. And then he gives them some reasons why he does that, which was including that participation in the gospel but this morning we come to the prayer itself before i get to the prayer though i would mention one thing and that is as we think of what he prays and the fact that he does pray for them he might almost be tempted or someone might be tempted to say why does paul even pray for them i mean after all in verse six he has said i'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of christ jesus if he's confident that god's going to do that then why pray for them? Why pray that they would grow in the way that he prays for them to grow? And some people would see that and think, contradiction. It doesn't seem like it fits. But it's not a real contradiction. The God who has determined that they will grow also has determined the means by which they will grow. And that includes praying for them. It includes them having to do the very things that Paul is praying that they do. So on the one hand, Paul prays that they'll grow in love but then in chapter 2, he tells them to put other people's interests in front of their own. They have to put feet to the very thing he's praying. So God makes possible the prayer that Paul's praying. But the people have to obey as God enables them. So both things go together. God enables, they obey. To the prayer itself. The prayer, the request, really, I believe, is, is verse 9. Let's read verse 9, 10, and 11 again. This is uh, the, the portion we'll be particularly looking at, verse 9 and 10, but we'll read through verse 11. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, even in that sentence, which comes from verse 9 through verse 11, the, the request that he has, the petition that he has, is verse 9. His prayer, this I pray, this, this thing I pray, that, you, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So, you know, Verses 3 through 11, I want to tell you about my praying for you. Verse 9, here's my prayer. It seems kind of short almost. But you have to understand, he's not giving us a word-for-word -word play of his prayer life. He's not saying, every time I think of you, I pray. Now let me tell you all the things I say when I pray. It's not a transcription. Uh, have you ever seen someone transcribe a letter? 
I've not seen it like in real life, but I've like seen old movies where you see this guy call the secretary in and say, you know, bring your pad. I want to transcribe a letter. And so she comes in with the pad and he walks around and maybe he rambles, strike that. And he's trying to, to dictate this letter. And her job is to try to get on page what it is he's trying to say, word for word. Or, or maybe you've seen someone or you've used a, a, a dictaphone where you talk into this thing and, and they play it back later and they type out the things that you've said. I've never done either one of these things, you can tell. But Paul is not talking into a dictaphone. He's not, you know, it's not as if Timothy, Timothy's sitting over here with a pen and, and paper saying, no, slow down, Paul, I didn't get that. He's not transcribing for us his prayers, but he's giving us the content of it. Here's the thing that I pray for you. I'm sure there's other things he prays for them as he thinks about them. But here is the thing that I repeatedly think of and pray for you when I remember you. This, of all the things he could pray for them. This, that your love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. This is what you need. This is what I pray for you. Paul prays that they would have an abounding love. He does not say that they lack love. You know, you're devoid of love and you've got to start loving people. He doesn't say that. He doesn't pray that God would create a love in them that does not presently exist or that he's unsure of their love. No, in fact, he's very sure of their love. He's seen the evidence of their love and their participation in the gospel. But he asked that their love would abound still more and more. If you think about Paul's viewing their love in, in terms of Paul's words to the Corinthians where he prays that, you know, we, we urge you, not praying, but we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He could look at the Philippians and say, you haven't. You know, grace has come and the evidence of it is the way that you love. And I see the evidence of that love in your participation in the gospel. I see evidence. There's fruit here. And so it's not a question of have you received this in vain or not. But I want to see you bear even more fruit than you're already bearing. The word abound conveys the idea of, of surplus, overabundance. Jesus uses the word in Mark 12, 44, where he's talking about the widow who puts her might in the box. And there are other people who are giving money also and who are giving more money than she is giving. But Jesus points her out because he says she gave everything she had while everyone else was giving out of their surplus or their abounding <laughs> they gave he's not deriding them but she gave everything they gave from surplus or in Matthew 15 a multitude has gathered to hear Jesus teach 4,000 men the Bible says plus women and children and Jesus turns to the disciples and says feed them And they, how are we going to feed all these people we only have seven loaves and a few small fish. And Jesus prays and begins breaking the food and handing it to the disciples. And they hand it to the people. And everyone eats. And when they're full, they pick up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. What was left over is this same word as abounding. There was a surplus. There's an abundance. More than we needed. We get the idea, don't we? Have you ever gone to the, the cabinet where the food is or the refrigerator and you open it and it's like a plague of locusts has come through? It's like there's nothing in here. It's bare. But then there's grocery day. Does it work this way at your house? Grocery day, like it's packed, it's full. It may not be there tomorrow, but today it's like there's this abundance of food. There's choices. Here's an abundance. Paul prays this for the Philippians. That there would be an abounding of your love. A surplus. You have love. You have an abundance of love. But it needs to abound even more. Now again, of all the things that Paul could pray for them, why love? Of all the needs that they might have, how is love the thing that he mentions? And, and to the exclusion really of anything else. Well, perhaps because love is the fulfillment of the law. 
Romans 13.10 tells us that. Love is the fulfillment of the law toward God in the first table, those first four commandments. Love's the fulfillment of the law to our neighbor in the second table, the last six commandments. And it's the answer to what the law requires. And it pleases God. This is how to please God in the things He's commanded us. Love. But it is also central or, or uh, maybe it has a priority among the Christian graces. I would think most everyone here is familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 1 says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And the last verse in that section, verse 13 says, But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. It's not just in this chapter. In Galatians chapter 5, where we have one of those lists of the fruits of the Spirit, the first one, and, and many people would argue kind of the, the spring from which the others flow, is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And so Paul is praying that the, Corinth, the, the Philippians and us would grow in grace, grow in the Christian life, and that that growth would begin with and be characterized by an abounding love. The love that he prays for, the love that he desires to see abounding, is, is not just any kind of love, though. It is a selfless love. He uses the word agape, which is, is one of the ways that the Greek can say love, where we would have one word for love primarily. And that word is used very much in the New Testament to describe the love of Christ, demonstrated in his sacrifice of himself for the benefit of others. Christ Jesus models this love as he gives himself for the sins of the world. And it's a theme that, that Paul picks up again in Philippians 2, when in verse 3 he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And then he points us to Christ in verse 5 and says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, that doesn't mention love, but it is the expression of love, is it not? And there are other passages that point to the same event and clearly tell us that love is the motive. God so loved the world, He gave. Uh, love is the motive here. And so He's praying that we would have, that the Philippians would have a selfless kind of love that sacrifices for the benefit of others. It's that kind of love that they've already demonstrated by their partnership with Paul in the gospel. That this is the kind of love that he is speaking of, I believe, is further evidenced by the, the grammar of the passage. And what I mean by that is the sentence that calls for this abounding love has no object. Love who? An abounding love for what? Well, it doesn't say. And part of the reason it doesn't say that, I believe, is because the emphasis isn't on the object of the love as much as it is the character of the lover. You're not looking for reasons in a person to love. You're drawing love from what God has done in you. Or God, with His love directed toward us, draws love from Himself. He doesn't look and say, oh, how lovable does He? No, God demonstrated His love, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So He looks at a people who are undeserving of love and draws reasons from Himself to love them. So this sacrificial kind of love is a love that needs to abound. And we desperately, desperately need this. Again, this is the, the real request that he makes for them. The one request that he makes. God, give them an abounding love. And notice how he emphasizes this necessity. He doesn't just say, you need a love that's linked together with knowledge and discernment. But a love that abounds in knowledge and discernment. So the idea is not just that they accompany each other and it's kind of stagnant, not growing. You got a little bit and you're satisfied with that. But it's abounding, it's growing, it's, it's moving forward. But he doesn't stop there. 
He says you need a love that abounds more. However much you have, you need more. And he doesn't stop there. I mean, that kind of says it all, doesn't it? But look at, look at how he emphasizes it. You need it to abound more and more. Is this enough? Not yet. What about now? Not yet. And he doesn't even stop there. A love that abounds still more and more. How needy must the Philippians be and how needy must we be in regards to this kind of love that Paul says, look, of all the things I could pray for you, church, here's the thing that I bring to God every time I think of you. God, give them a love that abounds still more and more in these ways. You've made great strides in this love, Philippians. There's still room for growth. Next, notice the environment of this abounding love. Again, Paul's praying for a particular kind of love. It's not the kind of love that Hollywood talks about. You won't learn about this from there. Or magazines, you know, at, at Walmart. Or a Harlequin Romance. They even still make those? Don't tell me because I don't want to know that you know. Uh, do they still make those? Um, you're not going to read it there. This is the love that we see, the love of God in Christ. And Paul says of this kind of love, he qualifies it further in verse 9, the second half, when he says, This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Before we talk about this knowledge and discernment in, in detail, I want to point out the balance that Paul expresses. Even with the language that he's already used, the fact that he, he speaks of this agape kind of love or that love has no object here, how tempting it would be for us to define this love by how the world defines or how we're feeling at the moment. You know, it'd be easy to think that the loving thing to do is what I want to do. And not necessarily what's good for them. What feels good to me at the moment. That feels very loving. But Paul removes all the ground that we might find and be tempted in that way. And really we're warned by his expression of two different extremes that we have to avoid. On one hand, there's a love that is all sentimental. All feel good. All experience. We just love everybody, you know. And certainly we want to love, but he, he says that's not enough. It's not enough by itself. And if you just live there, that's all you got. It's not enough and it won't endure. But the other side of it is the other temptation is having a, a theoretical knowledge that you grab hold of and it really entertains you maybe. Maybe you, you know, you're, you're delighted in putting the ideas together and, and parsing sentences and all that kind of good stuff, but it never reaches your heart. And he warns against both by saying what you need is this love that abounds in knowledge. It, not a knowledge without love or a love without knowledge. You need them both. This love has to abound in the environment of knowledge and discernment. And so in his prayer, he avoids both of these kinds of extremes. And in giving us these, these two words, you can think of it as the environment in which this kind of love can thrive. It requires certain things for this to do well and thrive. Um, I have made numerous attempts at gardening over the years, and I'm not a, a proficient gardener. I, I have never stopped long enough to understand pH levels in soil and all that kind of good stuff. People tell me I should. I just don't. So I have planted watermelon numerous times. And every time, pretty much, it's been a flop. Either I don't get anything at all, or the plant grows, and there's really no fruit. You know, you might get something like that, and then summer's over, and that was it. This summer, but my point is, there's an environment there in which that plant couldn't thrive, you know. I don't know what it was, but something was missing that was necessary. This year, we, we, we put down some cardboard and some compost and planted a watermelon in this patch. 
And it's one plant, and it has just gone everywhere. I couldn't tell you what's right about this versus attempts before, but it is massive. If it was growing up instead of out, I'd look for Jack, you know, because it is really large, and there are lots of fruit on it. Um, there's a soil there that seems to be conducive to that watermelon plant. It likes it. The environment there is right. If we want a love that abounds still more and more, there is an, an environment in which it will thrive. And if it lacks the proper nutrients, if the proper elements are not there, then this love will not flourish. And so Paul gives us two things that are necessary to have this selfish, selfish, ha, selfless, sacrificial kind of love that abounds still more and more. The first is what the New American Standard calls a real knowledge. This knowledge is more than the facts. It's more than a surface understanding about things. And it's more than just intellectual knowledge. It's more than just grasping and really understanding concepts. Although you do have to, I mean, it's not knowledge apart from understanding. But it's more than just saying, okay, I got it. The word that's used here in verse 9 is a word for knowledge that generally conveys the idea of experiential knowledge. It's the knowledge that is the product of experience. I've lived this truth. I've walked with God in this truth. And it's not just something I know because I read it. It's something I know because I've lived with God. We have an electric fence around our property. And I have this little tester. You stick the ground in into the soil and you hang the other end on the fence and it will tell you how hot the fence is. And it blinks, the lights blink as this voltage surges through the fence. And I don't know what the numbers are, but I know the higher is good as far as keeping the animals where they're supposed to be. And so I can see that blinking all the way to the top and I know the fence is good. But if you ask me if the fence is hot... I'm not going to tell you, yes, it has this many volts. That doesn't mean much to me, and it probably wouldn't mean much to you, but I can tell you it's hot. Do you know how I know? (laughs) I've touched it, (laughs) and it is hot. Uh, I I was out one day on my knees working on a spot, and I leaned into it right on top of my head. You don't want to do that. I know by experience that fence is hot. Paul is calling us to more than an intellectual knowledge that knows how to read a gauge and say, yep, hot. Paul's calling us to a knowledge that has experienced the realities that he's speaking of and found them to be true because you walk with the Lord. He uses this word in an intensified form and the New American Standard tries to capture that intensity with the word real knowledge or complete knowledge, authentic knowledge. Knowledge. He uses this form 15 times in his letters, and all 15 times refer to the knowledge that God gives or in reference to the knowledge of God and of Christ. And I believe that's what he's talking about here also when he's saying we need a love that abounds in real knowledge. Knowledge about what, Paul? Because there's no object here either. Well, it's the knowledge of God and of his salvation, his ways. You need to know that. And more than you can get from a theology book, you need to walk with this God in relationship with Him, trusting Him. So Paul is praying for a love that abounds in the environment of a life that knows God because the person is walking with God. Here's a person who's dependent upon God, leaning on His promises, trusting and believing what He has said. And with that in mind, we see again, this love is not a sentimental, uninformed love. It is a love that is informed by and shaped by the knowledge that comes from walking with the living God. Now, why is this necessary? 
why is this particular kind of knowledge a, necess- a necessary ingredient for a selfless, sacrificing love? Well, because if you aren't thinking correctly about God, if you aren't thinking correctly about His character, if you aren't living by faith upon the things that He has said, if you are unfamiliar with how He works, then why would you come across a difficult person and love them in a selfless kind of way? Why put yourself out there if you don't believe who God is who He says He is, if you don't believe He works the way He describes? And if you don't know that for yourself, then when it gets really, really hard, you're going to be much more tempted to quit. I've had enough. But if you've walked with the Lord, then you've seen and become convinced that God can take a really difficult person who's really selfish maybe really wicked and change them so that they are not who they used to be. Maybe you've even seen it in yourself, right? God can change a heart and God can change their heart. Convinced of that, you endure. If you're going to have a love like Christ Jesus had for others, you're going to have to live upon God in the way that Christ Jesus did while on the earth. You're going to have to know Him. Not just as a God, but as my God, as my Father. You're going to have to have a relationship with Him. So Paul prays for this growing, abounding love that will thrive in the soil of real knowledge. Or we might say that a growing, abounding love requires a growing, abounding, experiential knowledge of Jesus. A knowledge of Him that is grasped With the mind, yes, but then lived upon. I believe Peter recognizes that this real knowledge and love go together and that the lack of knowledge produces a lack of love. He says it in this way in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. He's speaking about Paul and his letters, and he says, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. There are people, he says, who are untaught and unstable. They don't know, and they're unstable. And these two ideas he's linking together. Who is it that's unstable when things get hard? Who is most upset or derailed when life goes wrong? It's those who don't know. Those who lack knowledge, the knowledge experienced by living with Christ. I don't mean that people that know better don't care. I don't mean that. I mean people that walk with the Lord Jesus care the most. And the answer to not being completely derailed by Life, according to Peter, is to have a greater knowledge of God. So, back to Paul, he prays that you may have a love that abounds still more and more in real knowledge. The more we know this love, the more suited we are to face life. So, that's one ingredient. Knowledge. The second, though, there's a second ingredient that's necessary for this selfless love to abound still more and more. Knowledge, and then the second is, as he says here, all discernment. This word in its form here occurs only here in our New Testament. But there is a form of the word that's a little bit different in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14. Hebrews 5.14 says, But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The word senses there is the, the related word to the word that we find here for discernment in Philippians. They have their senses trained to discern good and evil. It's the idea of making judgments. 
And in the context here, I believe moral judgments. And Paul is praying a Christian prayer. Moral judgments. Moral discernments. It's looking at things and seeing right and wrong. But more than that, it is how to apply this love that abounds with the knowledge I have to life as I live it. I live in God's providence and He lets come my way or sends my way what He thinks I need. And I'm to meet each of those with a love that abounds still more and more in knowledge and discernment. I'm to apply the knowledge I have and the love I have to the situations that God allows me to face. And what good is all the love in the world if you don't know how to express it in the situations God brings to you? What good is a head full of knowledge and facts if you don't know how to apply it to the life that God has called you to live? So Paul says, here are these two ingredients that are necessary in this soil if we want fruitfulness in our love, if we want it to abound still more and more, you need real knowledge, experiential knowledge, and you need this discernment. This word discernment, we get our English word aesthetics from. You know this word? You might say someone has a good aesthetic. <laughs> They're able to look at things and say, yes, that, no, not that. Some people, you know, they dress and you look and think, did mama not tell you that I didn't go with that? And I hesitate to even say that because I'm sure someone's looking at me and saying, don't you know that tie doesn't go with that coat or whatever. But, you know, some people you look at and you don't maybe understand why, but you just know that works. And other people you think, that doesn't work. Or maybe it's how, you know, a house is put together or whatever number of things. Music, you know, you can have an ear for music and say, that really works. And... Other people, you know, think something else works, and most people hear it and think, yeah, not really. So you can have an ear for that kind of thing or an eye for that kind of thing, but here is an eye, a spiritual eye, if you will, for what's right and how to apply this love and this knowledge to life as God calls me to lead it. Do you ever find yourself in need of discernment? God, what do I do here? God, how do I respond to that? God, what do I say? Should I say anything? That's Paul's prayer for the Philippians. That they would know that. Now, think about the Philippians for just a moment. Here they are. And their culture is a pagan culture, a very Roman city. They're very proud of their Roman city. And God has rescued this little body out of that Roman city. But they still live there. They still work there. They still shop there. They're still surrounded by this pagan culture. Surely they're put into situations all the time where they have to think, what do I say? What do I do? Paul's praying that they'll know that God will equip them with what they need to meet those kinds of questions. Paul was concerned for them. And his concern was for the glory of God in the church in Philippi. So he prays this. The Philippians needed this. And so do we. I mean, how many new ideas come down the pike? <laughs> There's this new thing, you know, and you see so many people running toward it. Do you ever stop and say, whoa, before I run, God, is that something to run toward or is that something to run away from? God, this thing, I just saw it online. Do I answer that or do I keep my mouth shut this time? How, how do I respond to this? How do I act toward that? I, I need discernment. And not just discernment. We need all of it. All of it goes together. It falls together. It stands together. What good is love without knowledge and discernment? How do you, how do you love correctly when you don't walk with the Lord and your love is skewed? 
or you don't have discernment to know how to apply it. So maybe you, you love in the wrong way and you hurt somebody instead of really helping them. And what good is knowledge without love when you've got a big head but you don't really care about people and so on. So Paul gives us this environment in which love abounds and both of these things are necessary and if either of these things are missing, then love will not flourish. May your love abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Now, in verse 10, and we'll only get to the first part of this this morning, but in verse 10, the first part of that verse speaks of one of the results of abounding love. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. And he has a goal beyond that, and we'll talk about that next time, next well, Wednesday, I guess. Um, but the first step in that, or the first result, if you will, of this abounding love is that you would be able to approve the things that are excellent. They need a love that abounds still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And so do we, because we need to be able to approve the things that are excellent. And if you have the prerequisite ingredients, love, real knowledge, all discernment, then you're in a position to do just that. Now you may have a footnote or a marginal note here that reads, to distinguish between the things that differ. To distinguish between the things that differ. This is a, a translation question. Have you ever heard someone say... Uh, you know, someone speaks in another language and they translate for you or someone else translates for you and says, they said this, but it sounds much better in that language or it's much prettier in that language. You know, there are some things that just don't directly translate. And this is kind of one of those situations where both of these are perfectly good translations to approve what's excellent, to distinguish between things that differ. It's one of those things where it's hard to say it's definitely that and not that. And really, they kind of go together. If you're going to approve what's excellent, then first you need to be able to distinguish what differs. You need to be able to distinguish, to make a distinction, to say, yes, that one, not that. And that really is, I believe, the idea, this idea of being able to make a distinction so you can say that. In uh, Bible times, this term was used of an assayer, assaying precious metals. So here's something supposed to be gold. Is it really gold or not? I want to know that, don't you? Yeah, is it the real thing or is it fake? Or here's you know, two different samples of gold and one's better than the other. They both cost the same money for you. Which one is better? How do you distinguish between the two? Or they might use it of cattle. Here's, here's two cows. They look identical. Same price, which one do you want? Well, you need to be able to look and determine that. Don't come and see me, because I don't know. Story for another time. Um, so we need to be able to distinguish good from evil, right from wrong, sick from healthy. But the picture here is really more than just doing that. It is distinguishing the good from the best, or the best from the good. Here's two good options. Which one's the best option? Maybe more in line with our experience would be buying a car. Here are two vehicles. They look identical. They get similar miles, similar features. You know, if you crank one, there's a big cloud of blue smoke that comes out. And the other one, no smoke. It's pretty easy to determine. I want that one, right? But what if they look alike in every way? How do you determine which one is the better deal for you? And so it's, it's a... a Ability to distinguish the best thing. And of course, as Paul uses it, he's speaking about something much more important than picking a car or a cow or a piece of metal. But life, how do you know which is the best course of action? How do you know what it is you're supposed to do? To put it in Lloyd-Jones terms, Paul is saying, if you, if you have these ingredients, then you will know what is vital. It's vital. This is the vital thing. You'll know what's vital because you're able to distinguish. You're able to approve what's excellent. You'll know what to pursue and what to ignore. And that's important. 
That is vital. How much time is wasted running after secondary things that are good, but they're not vital? And Paul's saying here is how to know what the vital thing is so that you spend your time and your love there. I think Paul himself expresses this very idea personally in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, where he talks about the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And then in verse 10, he picks up and says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the thing. Everything else is is kind of secondary. This is the thing that I may know him. And that's what he's pursuing. Everything else set aside for that pursuit. So you look at situations that come and you try to line them up even under that pursuit. You think, which one is vital? (laughs) Which one helps me to run the race that God's called me to run? Which one? How to respond in such a way that I am pursuing the very things that God has for me to pursue. That's what he's praying. Well, let me give you some practical things from what Paul has said here, or what I hope is practical, some application, as we consider just this little bit of this sentence. First, as Paul prays here, and John just mentioned this Wednesday night, uh, this, I guess, providential, because I don't think he really stopped to think where I was in Philippians when he began talking about what he was talking about. But he just handed out you know, an email. There was a, a, a thing for you with uh, the prayers of Paul as kind of models. And here's one of them right now. And it is a model for us to pray. Not that we take his exact words necessarily and and every prayer is these exact words, but the ideas that are encapsulated here, the request that he has and the things that are necessary for that request to be true. These are wonderful things for us to pray. And it's a model for us in a couple of ways. One, sometimes we are asked to pray for somebody or some situation and we don't have a lot of details. We you know, maybe it can't be shared or maybe that person doesn't know either and it's just, here's this request, would you pray for so-and-so? Well, yes, but what are you going to pray? You know, you would like to have some details and maybe if you know them, you ask for details. and There's nothing wrong with that. But here is a situation where Paul probably doesn't have a lot of details. There's no telephone to pick up and say, hey, tell me what's happening today. There's no email or text message to get the latest And even though Epaphroditus has come to him and brought news, how old is that news by the time he gets from Philippi to Rome? The situation could have changed. And so there's a lot of things that Paul doesn't know, but he does know this. You need this thing. And so he prays, God, make their love to abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve the things that are excellent. They need that. And we do too. And so, although he didn't have a lot of specifics at that moment, he did not lack the ability to pray for them intelligently. These aren't filler words. It's not empty talk to fill up a prayer time. He's giving us what they need. And in fact, these same kinds of ideas as he prays for the Philippians, these are... are, um, These are themes that we see picked up again in Ephesians. We see picked up in Colossians. He prays similar things for them. They would grow in knowledge and the will of God. So it's not filler. It's an intelligent prayer. Here's a great prayer to pray for yourself, believer. I mean, do you ever find yourself in new territory? You know, you, you see where you're standing today and you think, I've never been here before. I never thought I'd be talking about this. Never thought I'd have to answer this. Never thought I'd have to deal with this. But there you are. What do you do? God, make my love to abound still more and more 
in real knowledge and all discernment so that I can approve the things that are excellent. How am I supposed to distinguish this, God, except you help me? It's a wonderful thing to pray. How many times could you pray something like that at home? You know, relationships at home. You can pick, but you know, a child, God, how do I respond to my child in this? God, I don't know. I need a knowledge that comes from you and a discernment that comes from you. I need you to equip me to love in this situation and to know what love looks like in this situation. How many times can you apply that at work where you're put in situations where you think, do I say something? Or is the God honoring thing to do in this situation not to say something? Is it sinful for me to be quiet? God, how I need to be able to distinguish the things that differ. I need to be able to approve the things that are excellent. God, equip me toward that end. At school, someone tells you you came from a monkey, you know? How many of those talks do you hear before you think, do I say something? Is it reproachful to Christ for me to say something in this situation? Should I go privately? Should I say it publicly? God, what do I do? Here's a prayer that Paul tells us. It answers the situation, not directly, but it's a prayer for God to answer the situation directly. God, tell me how to distinguish what to do here. How to do it with love. Over the past few weeks, as I have looked at this passage, I find this more and more to be my prayer for you. And sometimes I know specific, sometimes I don't. But God, we all need to grow. And here's a way that we need to grow, abounding still more and more in a love that is in the environment of knowledge of Jesus. From a walk with Him that's real and living. And a discernment that sees things as they are and knows how to bring the gospel to bear. Here's a wonderful way for you to pray for your elders. God help them to know what is the excellent thing. To distinguish the things that differ. From all the choices, all the things that we could do, all the pursuits, God, help us to stay on the path that you've designed for us and to turn aside from every distraction. But God, we don't want to bypass what you have for us and count it a distraction. Give us wisdom. Second, a second application. Um, Paul prays here for the growth of the Philippian believers. A growing love and a growing knowledge and a growing discernment. You know, as they look at life and the things that differ, proving excellence, he's calling for Christian growth and the application of the gospel to life as they encounter it. But in the prayer itself, again, it's not all sentiment. God, just make them, you know, make them smart. (laughs) Make them know it's intelligent. There's doctrine here. And even in the prayer, he's in a sense giving us the path to Christian growth. What does it mean to grow in grace? Well, it's to grow in a love that flourishes in the environment of real knowledge and discernment. All these ingredients, remember, are necessary. Love without without knowledge is ignorant. It's so often not helpful, just, again, full of sentiment. Love without discretion, not helpful. Applied in the wrong way, done the wrong thing. What do you have, though, if you have knowledge without love? 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, knowledge makes arrogant. 
I need all of these things, God. Needy for all of these things. Again, 1 Corinthians 13, this time verse 2. Paul writes, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. One ingredient, God, is not enough. I, I need all of these things together. So God, give us a love that abounds in knowledge. Knowledge that's experienced in walking with Christ. A knowledge lived upon. A knowledge that is united to love. And here is why the means of grace are so important. How arrogant to pray that God would give us this abounding love in real knowledge and all discernment, but then not make use of the means that He gives us. God, give me a real knowledge, but I'm not going to open Your Word. Give me a real knowledge, but I'm not going to, to you know, really... Apply myself to the preaching of the word or other opportunities to learn. God, give me a discernment, but I'm not really going to pray and try to depend upon the spirit as I apply these things to life. Give me real love, God, but what I really want is me. It's, it's an arrogance and it is a wickedness to pray and ask God to give you these things when you won't apply yourself to the things that he's given you toward their end. The means. Last, if this is what the Christian needs, if the Christian is that needy, love that abounds still more and more, what does it say about the unbeliever? I mean, Paul is praying for believers. He's not praying for lost people in Philippians chapter 1. But here are these Philippian believers who are partners with him in the gospel. He looks at them. They have an abounding love. God make their abound abounding love abounds still more and more in these areas. They're needy here. If they are needy there, then what about the person who doesn't really know God, isn't equipped in these ways at all? Where do they stand in love? I don't mean that a lost person is necessarily uncaring and unfeeling but I do mean you don't know love as God describes it because you can't know love as God describes it until you've been conquered by that love. And you won't be able to love another person selflessly, sacrificially, like Christ has loved his church until you've come under the influence of his love and been conquered by that love. And what about this knowledge? You may be brilliant. And you may have read theology books and can quote them and understand them and explain them so that the smallest child can understand them. But understand this, Paul's not talking about your brain, but a life that's been grabbed by that theology and that lives upon that theology. And you cannot do that until Christ has conquered you and you belong to him and you walk with him by faith upon those very truths that he himself has laid out. How will you discern and make moral judgments? Your heart is wicked. I don't mean that you've done every wicked thing you've ever thought of or that you're as bad as you could possibly be, but you are completely corrupt. And until Christ Jesus cleanses you, that's what you are. You're polluted. And you stand in need of cleansing. And you stand in need of His forgiveness. And so, when we look at this prayer, understand, Paul's not praying for you. He's praying for the church. 
And while this is a wonderful prayer for the believer to pray for himself or for other believers, it's not really the prayer for the unbeliever. God, make their love to abound. No, God, give them love. Create in them this love that only you can give and give them a knowledge that they cannot attain for themselves. Give them this kind of discernment, God. Awaken them to Christ and make them to live. That's a prayer for you. And so we urge you this morning to repent. Flee from your pride and run to Christ. Run to the refuge, the only refuge that's available for sinners. Come to God by way of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to come to Him. Come to Him. Walk with Him. Live in fellowship with Him. And find the love that abounds. A knowledge that is experiential as you live with Him. A discernment given by God to know how to apply this to the life that He's ordained for you. And the ability to distinguish between things that differ. Choosing what's vital so that you can walk and live according to the glory of God. Christian, for you, Paul's prayer is so simple. So full and wonderful. A love that abounds still more and more in real knowledge. It's all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent. May God make this to be our reality more and more in the coming days. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.